I first heard this song live from the bow of a catamaran in the North Pacific while working as a marine naturalist. I dropped the hydrophone overboard to eavesdrop on the enormous humpback whales suspended just beneath our sailboat, serenading the Hawaiian breeding grounds with song, a song that changes every year, communicating what we still don't know. All the passengers are silent as they listen to the ethereal song amplified above water. One woman is quietly crying and smiling at the same time. <laughs> she approaches me after I reel the hydrophone back on board and thanks me. I've never heard them sing before, she says. So much marine life communicates through sound. In an environment where light attenuates at 200 meters, Sound is an efficient way to navigate, to locate prey, to woo a mate. So whales and wind, what's the connection? There is nearly double the amount of energy we use in one year in the U.S. available in offshore wind off of our nation's coast. That's over 2,000 gigawatts, and that's a conservative estimate by the Department of Energy, which excludes locations where the ocean is too deep to realistically build wind farms or where the wind doesn't blow consistently. And it gets better. Once you build that wind farm, the fuel is free. It's out there blowing every day. And not only is wind free, it's also clean and renewable. It doesn't require the burning of fossil fuels, which pollute our atmosphere with greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change. Offshore wind seems like a no-brainer, right? The Biden administration agrees and sees this opportunity to kick our national dependency on fossil fuel. The administration announced their 30 gigawatts by 2030 plan last spring to support the development of offshore wind. So, what's the catch? Welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab in Beaufort, North Carolina. I'm your host, Nora Ives. In this episode of The F-Files, I'll highlight the work of faculty member Dr. Doug Novacek and his recently DOE-awarded grant for the WOW Project, which stands for Wildlife and Offshore Wind. In my interview with Doug, we'll explore some of the potential impacts of offshore wind on wildlife, including our humpbacks and other whales, and the potential ways to mitigate those impacts. We'll talk about wind energy, how sound comes into play, and the goals of the WOW Project. All right, let's dive into the interview. I'm here with Dr. Doug Novacek, an expert on the bioacoustics of cetaceans. Dr. Novacek has served as a panel advisor for the IUCN, has given expert testimony to Congress on cetacean bioacoustics, and is also my professor this semester for offshore renewable energy. In our first conversation, Doug breaks down some of the physics and engineering behind offshore wind. Um, so as we're learning in our course this semester, offshore wind energy development is uh, an exciting addition to the renewable energy sector and has the potential to um, contribute a large percentage to the U.S. energy grid. Is yep. that correct? Absolutely. You... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so um, so why wind, right? I mean, that's that's the one of the big questions. Uh, wind is certainly used terrestrially in the U.S., very successfully in, in the interior of the country. Um, the offshore wind is particularly uh, appealing because there's lots of space out there to put turbines. Um, the wind is consistent, 
there are lots of really interesting wind energy maps that folks can, can visit through the National Renewable Energy Lab, for example, and oh, cool. um, And you can see where the wind potential is, is quite good. Uh, and there's, there's lots of it in the US. And a lot of it on the continental shelf, which is very uh, good because then siting the turbines is easier when the water's not too, too deep, uh, although we can get into that later. Uh, so it's um, the other part about, about having a lot of space is that the turbines can get very big. And this is a really important aspect of wind because the amount of energy that a given turbine can generate is directly related to how much area is swept, as you will have learned in class. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, so the area that the blades actually move through um, is directly related to how much power it can generate. And so if you get further offshore, the turbines can get taller and have a bigger swept area, and each one can generate more power. So we're talking about the blades on the actual windmill, correct? That's right. So the bigger the blade, the more power. That's right. Okay. That's right. And people look at them um, and notice that they seem to be turning quite slowly, uh, but the, the physics of it really is that they're the, the tip of those blades, right, so if the whole blade is spinning at the same rate, the tip of it is actually moving very fast because it's going through a much bigger area, right? So as that area, the swept area that it's called, gets bigger and bigger, then, um, then it generates more and more power. And it's an exponential relationship because of, um, because of the area, the way you calculate the area of a circle, uh, and also the wind speed. So, so in that sense, it's very attractive because you can put up big bladed wind turbines and not be interfering with um, airplanes flying or people flying kites or parasails or anything like that. And it's just, there's a lot of space for it to happen. Very exciting. So we've got, okay, so we've got more space offshore to do this, to install these bigger turbines. And then you mentioned the continental shelf, correct? Mm. So that, that allows us to install these turbines in relatively shallow areas mm. compared to offshore. Yeah. Deep, yeah. I guess, deep, deep. enough. Yeah, deep is all as a relative term. Oceanographers think of deep as a, more than 200 meters. Okay. But in the wind, in the wind power uh, area, it's really more than 60 meters. I believe is where it really transitions to deep, and the transition there is when it's shallower than that. Uh, it's pretty, it's feasible. Well, it's been done hundreds of times in Europe, and in and in China and other places, that you can fix the pile, the turbine through a piling directly to the bottom, and so the pile driving, which we'll come to, uh, is is loud for sure, um, but it's a stable way to site the turbine in the in the ground. Um, and if you're less than 60 meters, then you then it's really feasible to do that. Because think about that, then the turbine, the tower has to be the monopile, or if it's a monopile, has to be the depth of the water plus the height of the turbine, right? So that gets to be a big piece of equipment right. if you're talking about having to go through multiple tens of meters of water. So, uh, and then there are a couple different ways to do fixed wind turbines offshore. So you can do... They call them jacketed. They're monopiles. There are um, there are a couple different ways that that's that that's done. But of course, every it all relies on fixing them into the into the ground. As you get further offshore um, and get to deeper water, there are actually some operational floating wind farms, which is really amazing to me. The engineering and all this is really very exciting in and of itself, and presents some really interesting opportunities for students at all levels, um, from from undergrad right through you know PhD. Um, that your the engineering that's going along with this, which has been borrowed, has borrowed some 
technology from the offshore oil and gas industry mm -hmm. in terms of fixing things to the bottom and keeping them in place. Right. Um, and, and lots of other things too. But um, but the floating wind farms is, is really amazing. So there are a couple different ways to do it. One of them, you just think about the weight and balance. So that you put a big weight at the bottom of the stalk basically and, and it sits down there and, and floats and holds itself upright. It is tethered with three cables. Mm -hmm. So those cables still have to go into the bottom, but taking a you know, I don't know, one inch steel cable and tethering it to the bottom is a much different and much less invasive, much less expensive mm -hmm. than making a huge monopile that goes all the way to the bottom. Great. And so the floating wind farms, there's one operational in Scotland. There's another one, I believe, being installed off Portugal, maybe operational already. Uh, but so these, this, this technology is coming. Of course, the farther offshore you get, then you have to get the power back to shore, right. which is a whole nother whole other issue I'm not sure you want to talk about today. Right. Well, I do want to come back to the monopile you mentioned, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, as I understand it from class, yeah. uh, the majority of currently installed offshore wind is monopile, yeah. correct? So that's like so. a giant tree trunk yeah. to which the the windmill blades turbines are attached, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So we've got these monopiles yeah. and you have to drive it into the ocean floor mm -hmm. to secure it. Yeah. You said that's loud, right? Mm, it is. So it is. how loud is that? Uh, so pile driving, um, if we just take one step back to, to ocean noise, and um, the the biggest contributors, just just to tick them off, biggest contributors to ocean noise are, are shipping, is number one in terms of just total energy input. Next is, is offshore seismic surveys, largely for oil and gas exploration, because they need the biggest biggest sound to get down deepest into the water, into the bottom, into the substrate. Um, but pile driving and, and onshore, offshore construction is also quite loud because of the, the, in the case of the pile driving, so what you're doing is you're taking this huge monopile and they, these big barges go out with these massive hydraulic hammers, right? And they stand the piling up, put the hammer over the top and they just bang on it, right? And they bang it down into gravel and rock and mm. clay and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not as loud uh, on a per um, per hammer basis as a seismic by any means. Okay. Um, the, uh, it, it definitely produces sound and it emanates out from the, um, from the piling and from the operation. The other thing that it does do when you hammer it, of course, this energy gets coupled into the ground. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that can also spread through the ground. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Overall, these are this is a very localized source of noise, and it's a relatively short one because they can drive those piles in a matter of hours. Now, if you're putting together a whole wind farm, right, mm -hmm. then you're talking about a lot of monopiles. Um, it just just for comparison, and it's not to try to say one's necessarily better or worse than the other. Uh, a, uh, a seismic array for oil and gas exploration could cover hundreds of square kilometers, mm -hmm. shooting a shot every ten to twelve seconds. Um, and, and those shots are the loudest sound that we as people put into the water routinely. There are on offshore explosions and things that are done for lots of reasons. But on a routine basis, so you've got shot every 10 to 12 seconds, 24 seven, as these things are, uh, the ships are, are mowing the lawn effectively over these areas that are of interest for oil and gas. Um, so uh, so the in, it's just a different problem, it's slightly, uh, it's less energy overall going into the water, which is the way that I kind of think about it. And so um, the other thing about it is... It's less energy for the monopiles? Less energy for the monopiles. Okay. 
Well, absolutely, right. especially given the regularity and the the, the space and the and the um, how long the seismic surveys have to go. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, it's, it's much less energy. It's much more localized, and it's stationary, which has the advantage of being able to do things like put wind uh, bubble nets or um, things that are called cofferdams, which are basically just small structures that you that you construct around Ooh. it okay. that actually deadens the sound. Right. The bubble screens work. Reasonably well. Um, the the up and down side of it is um, bubbles in the water make their own noise, but they actually absorb that sound as it goes by a lot of it. The slight um, trick is that the pile driving has a lot of low frequency sound, and the bubble nets in general are better at absorbing slightly higher frequencies. And so it's not okay. perfect. You can make bigger bubbles. The size of the bubble relates to how well it absorbs different frequencies okay. it's more than we want to get into yeah. but none, nonetheless you have a, a localized sound source that if you want to you can you, you can at least have some effect on how much sound gets out right is, do, can, is there a, um, a comparison say if I were a humpback whale in the mm, Atlantic mm. cruising towards the breeding grounds or serenading trying to find a mate yeah, yeah. Um, is there a like a human analogy to what that sound would be like for yeah. that humpback whale, yeah. Like yeah. what that experience would be. Um, well, if you're to, to put it into human terms, I think if you if you um, well, we hear we hear hammering on shore. So when they build bridges, right, they'll drive pilings into the ground. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a humpback swimming up the, the east coast, how far away, for example, would you hear pile driving? Um, certainly, you know, kilometers away. Wow. They could hear it. Now, the, there's a, there's also an important distinction between being able to detect something, it being an annoyance, mm -hmm. and then lastly, it being actually potentially injurious. Right. Right. And so on the injury side, you'd have to be very close to that piling operation for okay. it to really cause any, any serious damage. You can be at sort of an interim distance, and you think about people that work in stamping factories and things where you have a repeated sound over and over. You can have hearing loss over a long period of time mm -hmm. if you get exposed to the same sound over and over and over again. Okay. We don't worry about that really that much for for cetaceans when it comes to this because they're not, you know, they're not in proximity long enough to be really um, right. uh, injured. Um, and once you drive them on a pile in, it's there. You don't have done. to keep hammering. Yeah, right. you're okay. done. It 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 is important uh, actually, Nora, to think to to be thorough about the um, the sources of sound if we're going to talk about sound in sighting wind farms mm -hmm. because they do have to figure out what the bottom's made of, yes. right? So okay. they can know, uh, you know, how much of a hammer they're gonna need and how deep they can go and all these sorts of things. So there are quote unquote seismic sources, but they're, you know, the bigger the bigger term is geophysical. Okay. So geophysical exploration is also done for research, right? It happens off the coast of North Carolina to look at um, tidal wave uh, danger, actually, to be honest. Um, so uh, it's, it's using sound, which is, really the most effective um, means of getting through the water and to explore things for, with given any distance. Um, and so so the wind, uh, siting wind farms does use these kind of sources, but it's a, hu a huge difference between that and what's used for oil and gas exploration, primarily because for two reasons, two big reasons. One is that if you look at the size of a wind farm compared to the size of an oil field, they're very different. Um, this, the wind farm areas are smaller. Okay. The other one is that the you know if you're driving a monopile 20 meters into the surface, 20 meters below the surface, 
you only need to know the top 20 or 40 or 50 meters, right? For oil and gas, those deposits can be kilometers underground. Wow. Right? And so you have to get enough energy into the water and then into the ground that goes down to a kilometer or more and comes back out again. So the, the actual source level is much higher for the, for the oil and gas just because they have to get deeper into the sediment. Okay. So basically, this is another point in offshore winds favor over fossil fuel extraction. Yes, they still have to survey the ocean floor before hammering down the piles of the wind turbines, but the difference in scale is important. Wind farms cover much smaller areas compared to the oil and gas seismic surveying, where they are essentially mowing the lawn all over the ocean, searching for oil and gas deposits deep under the ocean floor, which also requires a greater source of sound to see further into the ocean floor. So in effect, oil and gas puts more noise pollution into the ocean than offshore wind. Now we're going to break down how sound works underwater to better understand why noise pollution is bad for marine wildlife, and specifically whales. So if I were, let's say you were guest lecturing for like the third grade class, yeah, yeah. and you were explaining seismic surveying, and how you're using sound energy to mm -hmm. basically see the ocean yep. floor and see into the ocean floor. How would you explain that? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So, so sound moves through the water very much more quickly than it does in air. Um, depending on the frequency, it can also travel quite large distances. Um, uh, and especially at the low frequencies, and when I mean low in this is sort of the 50 hertz range, okay. which is, we can certainly hear that. We hear reasonably well from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, so 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Um, it's actually, when you put it up against the cetaceans, it's not a very impressive range, but <laughs> anyway. Um, so, so you create this sound source. The, the sound moves through the water and it reflects off things in the water, which is basically a, a sonar application or an echolocation application like the okay. toothed whales have. Um, but when that sound gets from the surface, in this case, for the geophysical sources, down into the bottom, it, it reflects and refracts through things in the bottom, depending on how dense they are. So oil and gas are less dense than rock, right? And so given that, they can, the geophysicists can recreate a picture of the bottom and what's at what depth and layer based mm -hmm. on how that sound bounces through the bottom, bounces back out of the bottom and comes back up through the water and you receive it at the surface. So you have to make the sound and receive it to get the information, which is also part of the reason it has to be loud. Okay. So it's, it, it really is the most effective means of doing that. You can drill and core, mm -hmm. right? You can drill cores, uh, but then you're getting one sample at one tiny little point, whereas the sound can illuminate, um, for lack of a better term, because we're such visual creatures, mm -hmm. uh, illuminate huge areas in a relatively short period of time. So, mm -hmm. But it, is put, it puts a lot of sound energy into the water. Right. And you've just described also how echolocating odontocetes or toothed whales perceive their environment, yeah, exactly. so we're directly yeah. affecting them. Yeah, um, and that's it's uh, so there's there's um, well we've got the echolocation for sure, mm -hmm. and for the most part that's pretty high frequency. Okay. So for example, a bottlenose dolphin that most people are familiar with, the the prime the the um, loudest part of their application click is at 70 kilohertz. So it's well above what we can hear. Um, there's some energy down lower. So if you have a hydrophone in the water and dolphins come by and they happen to be clicking, you hear sort of a 
because you'll just hear in the lower, very lower end of what they're making. Um, so that those really high frequencies are good over very short distances, relatively, relatively speaking, short distances for imaging things, which is what they do. Bats do the same thing. Um, the large whales, though, they use primarily lower frequencies, and that's where we start to get this overlap of um, things like pile driving mm -hmm. and seismic sources overlapping in the frequency range that the whales try to use. Mm -hmm. Doug then goes on to explain the different levels of impact that noise from pile driving and offshore wind construction can have on our great whales on the East Coast. Right, all these animals that use those low frequencies um, and, and have to, would have to deal with that localized pile driving for some period of time. Okay. So it has the potential to disrupt important breeding grounds. Yeah, that, so um, what, the way that we look at those disturbances we have, as I said, the injury, which okay. is very unlikely. Um, then we have this intermediate area of, of, of behavioral effects. And what I mean by that is changing the behavior of the animals, either their, their uh, locomotor behavior, like where they go, where they swim, how they swim, how they dive, or also their acoustic behavior, right? So how much calling are they doing? Um, does it interrupt their calling patterns, that kind of thing. Um, and so those things are, um, they're difficult enough just to quantify. Mm -hmm. um, they can be even trickier to then translate from, well, you've documented this change, right? They dive less or they dive more or they, you know, they change their vocal patterns. What does that mean to them long-term, mm -hmm. right? And you, so, so this idea of disrupting a breeding ground um, if, if you turn something on and all the singing humpbacks stopped and took off, you know, and, and didn't show back up again, that's a big problem, right? If you can detect a, a relatively minor change in singing behavior that happens just during the piling and then after it's over, it stops, then it's just a different equation. Right? You just mm -hmm. have to think about how, um, how much of an impact is that, right? Um, so, but as, as far as the sound itself goes, you know, it, it's, it's pretty easy for people to um, put themselves in a place where they, you know, they're dealing with an, an acoustic disturbance, right? And the interesting thing about, about sound, if you think about a, if you walk into a room and there's a bad smell, whatever that smell happens to be, if you stay in that room long enough, your nasal fatigue, as it's called, kicks in. <laughs> you just kind of stop smelling it. Get you step to, out, yeah. exactly. If you step out and step back in again, you're going to smell it. If somebody new comes in, they're going to smell it. You don't have that same uh, luxury with sound. Mm. Your system just will not stop responding to it. So it's a continually assaulting your senses. Yeah. 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 And that's why we have like noise regulations in, in workplaces, right? OSHA, the OSHA regulations for how much noise you can be exposed to while you're at work. Um, are there for everybody to read, right? And so, um, because what it does is it either can help, um, you can get to that level of causing injury, but, or the other one that, that we really started to get a handle on a little bit is that it causes stress, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, if you're, if there's a jackhammer out your window all day at work, at the end of the day, you're going to be like gripping the steering wheel on your way home, mm -hmm. or well, these days, maybe you're, <laughs> who knows what you're gripping if you're working at yeah. um, But um, But anyway, I, so those, those are important things to take into account. But again, stepping back from to, to constructing a wind farm, 
the monopiling, the piling is definitely allowed. There's no, there's no two ways about it. But it is um, something you can mitigate much easier than you can mitigate something like this, like this seismic air generating survey. Um, and it's, it's relatively short term. Okay, right? great. Now for the exciting part, the WOW proposal. In the interim between our first conversation and our second interview, the WOW proposal went from being a proposal to an awarded grant. So congratulations to Doug and the rest of the team, which includes over a dozen partner research institutions and organizations. The Department of Energy has awarded the proposal a $7.5 million grant to look at the impacts of offshore renewable wind development on wildlife. As Doug describes it, the WOW project is a science-based toolkit for government regulatory agencies, for industry, for as many stakeholders as they can engage to move through this development in a data-informed fashion. The first year of the project will be focused on determining what data is already available. Wind energy developers have already supported a lot of offshore surveys and data collection, including occurrence maps and density maps for wildlife. We're talking whales, birds, bats, and turtles in these areas of interest. Once they have a handle on existing data, the team will focus on developing research frameworks, figuring out what data do we have, what do we need, where are the gaps. Some of these gaps will be filled by ecological modeling and statistical analysis. The Center for Research and Ecological Modeling at the University of St. Andrews will be one of the partners contributing to that. And our very own Dr. Pat Halpin and his Marine Geospatial Ecology Lab will be leading the data synthesis component. All of this will inform risk assessment frameworks. In other words, determining what is the risk that a developer will negatively impact wildlife in offshore wind sites. One cool part of the research effort will include site monitoring to collect both pre and post construction data. For example, testing whether that bubble net or coffer dam as Doug spoke about earlier in the episode is indeed muffling the sound enough so that your endangered North Atlantic right whale isn't fleeing important breeding grounds or your beaked whale isn't deep diving away from the sound and expending valuable energy. Doug goes into detail about some of those monitoring tools in the interview. The project will also be supporting the development of new tech to monitor and mitigate impacts. And finally, all of this work will be shared in an open source system with DOE, developers, and the stakeholder community. My, my real question was, how does WOW play into all this and how will it help, um, help us transition to offshore renewable wind? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's, 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 a, it's a really good question in, in a couple ways. I think that the easiest way to answer it is that we are, a, a lot of these um, basic uh, potential impacts have already been defined, right? <clears throat> We're worried about right whales deviating around feeding areas. We're worried about, um, you know, the potential impact on, on benthic communities, which we're not going to look at, but we're also, we're worried about, you know, birds and bats once the, once the turbines are up. But for the marine mammals and in the water and the sound part of it, um, we actually have quite a lot more information than it, it may first seem because there, there's been construction offshore in a lot of places in the world, even where there has been baleen whales, right? So for example, in the, in the Arctic, we uh, bowhead whales, which are close relatives of right whales, um, have had to contend with um, offshore seismic surveys, but also construction. 
So pile driving, um, like monopiles, even if you do it right on coast, it still couples into the water. So we have, you know, we have quite a lot of, and and this is not necessarily data that the WOW project is going to um, uh, explicitly fold into some of these frameworks, but it's data that we already have in our minds. It helps us think about, well, where, where, where should we be worried? How should we address those concerns with right whales and, you know, wind development off Long Island, for example, right? So we sit down with the data that we have, which is quite a lot, and construct these frameworks, the research frameworks, the risk assessment frameworks. And you know, to a certain extent, we let those tell us how we direct those efforts. And there's certainly going to be uh, some good research done as part of the WOW project, right? Because we have these, these ecosystem, regional ecosystem studies. Um, but part of our con contribution is also helping to um, make sure that those studies, whether it's Long Island or New England or Virginia, are well-designed and well-informed as to answering those questions. So we're going to both do the research as well as help inform other research and future research. So good news is we have some research already yep. to throw at this. Um, and I believe you had previously described it as a science-based toolkit. That's what the WOW proposal is, developing this toolkit, right? Yep. yep. Yep, that's part of it. And and actually doing some field research, right? To actually collect data where we can be useful. Ooh, tell me more about that. That's the um, part, right? Yeah, it is the fun part. So we, um, the, what we proposed was two, um, what we called integrated reco regional ecosystem studies. So <clears throat> we proposed off uh, New England, off Massachusetts, Rhode Island. And then we proposed uh, a study off um, Long Island, New York. And the, part of the reason we did that is because uh, the New England sites are, are getting ready to start construction. Um, Vineyard Wind 1 is supposed to start in Q2 of 2022. Um, there's been quite a lot of data collected already before construction as part of the permitting process and as part of the various concerns that people have. Um, <clears throat> so, but we thought we could be effective during construction and post-construction. Uh, Long Island, on the other hand, is probably a year behind that, maybe. Um, so we might be able to get in and do some some pre-data uh, collection, some pre-construction data collection, and some during. And what that consists of um, is uh, a variety of things: passive acoustic studies, which you know, basically putting out sensors in the area of interest and listening for what's going on. Right. So the large whales, in particular, well, not in particular, large whales make low-frequency sounds that travel well through the ocean. And so you can put sensors around to listen for them. And it's, you know, it's, it's quite clever, it works very well. Uh, of course, is predicated on the fact that they make sound. Uh, and so if they don't, um, the, that system doesn't tell you anything. So these passive acoustic, acoustic monitoring systems are just underwater microphones that's it. dropped in the they're ocean. Just, yep, and they're just recording, yep. And then the, the data is collected via satellite or they have to be physically picked up by boats. How does that work? Uh, some of both. Uh, so there are long-term packages that just sit on the bottom and record and you have to go pick them up. Um, they can store a lot of data. You can leave the one out for a year. Um, it's a lot of data, but you go through with, with, um, with clever tools to pick out sounds of right whales or fin whales or whatever you're listening for. Um, <clears throat> some of them are tied to satellites um, quite effectively um, you're transmitting uh, detections in particular. So there's a, a group, uh, Mark Baumgartner is a, uh, an investigator in Woods Hole. He and his lab put together some very nice real-time detection buoys um, that sit out there and listen and they send back 
they do uh, processing on board and they send those detections back um, to be confirmed. And then they say, oh, the right whale was in the area at, at this time, right? Um, well, you mentioned they have to be making sound in the first place, right? They do, they do. Um, and, and one of the kind of kickers is that one of the potentials for disturbance is that a loud sound or a series of sounds or whatever changes the vocal behavior of an animal, right? It, may, it might make them less vocal, it might make them more vocal, but not knowing that is what's challenging, right? So if we, if we knew, for example, that if we made a disturbing sound that they doubled their vocal rate, well, that's brilliant, right? Because then we could just sit out there and say, oh, well, they doubled their vocal rate, so they're disturbed. Problem is we don't know how they respond, their vocal behavior, um, how their vocal behavior changes in the context of some kind of disturbance, right? We do have other data like from mohads again. Um, so using that comparative approach is really important to fill in the gaps that we don't have. Um, so the passive acoustic systems are one. And there are others that are um, uh, actually pretty cool that they, they can be put in a mode where they actually float and they just, they just sort of migrate around and they get geo-referenced so we know where they are all the time. And you can, yeah, so you can put them around a construction site, which is one of our plans. Uh, working very closely with the developers because there's safety and ships and all the stuff going on. So we have to be very careful about that. But um, but working in an area to get at some of these basic questions of how, you know, does this activity disturb the animals in some way, right? And so those some of those basic questions we don't have answers to yet. So that's one of the things that we're going to try and do. <clears throat> and the way we set it up in the proposal was to say, okay, we're going to work with the developers, which we're doing anyway, and say, okay, they're going to say, we're going to do construction in March and April in this location. And we say, okay, great. We'll get a ship out there. We'll get some tags. We'll get some people. And we'll actually go out and do a natural experiment, right? Cool. The activity's happening anyway. It's all permitted. Like, nobody's worried about. Um, we allay the concerns of killing animals or driving them all away or whatever. Um, but we still want to know how, how much they do respond, right? Mm -hmm. So we can plug it in for next time, right? Mm -hmm. And so we get out there during construction. And and do the experiment. Um, Sorry. Um, no, I was going to say I'm making it making it sound easier than it is because it's pretty complicated. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's then we're you know we're conducting an experiment without having to put more sound into the water, right? Because we're doing it with activity that's already happening. Right. Uh, and you had mentioned floating microphones as well, uh, and you said they could keep track. You, keeping track? Are they keeping track of? The animals sort of like creating a 3D, 3D map through sound, is that correct? They can do, yep, yep. <clears throat> so by having multiple sensors, um, an animal in the middle of that sensor array, if you will, we can, you can process the, the arrival time of those signals at the different sensors and actually locate where the animal is in, in, in ideally in 3D, but, but more commonly in 2D, right? So just an X, Y location. And so you know if they're, if they've moved out of an area, right? If there are no sounds in one area and there's a tons of sounds in the other area, then you could, which is different than it was before, then you could say, well, you know, they probably did move over there, right? That's so cool. Yeah, so that's one of the big tools. Another one is is putting tags on animals, right? Um, so, and they they fall generally into two categories. One is a, <clears throat> a, more, a more permanent attachment of a satellite linked transmitter. Um, so those which can also measure dive behavior, and some of them are getting to the point where they can actually measure some acoustics. Those are 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 pretty expensive these days still, but um, but that technology is coming. 
but nonetheless, the satellite link one, so you can track the animals reasonably well, although there's lots of error in some of the satellite systems, from those tags that you attach to the animals for days to weeks. Um, the shorter term ones are higher data rate, and they do things like um, measure the movement of the animal. So they have, think of it actually as like putting an iPhone on the back of a whale, because it's got the same sensors in it that, that your phone knows to flip the screen. Right? There's, there's accelerometers, right? They're just measuring acceleration. And so between those and a digital compass and a uh, gyroscope, you can figure out the energetics of the animal. You know, is it upside down? Is it right side up? Is it how hard is it swimming? Like how hard is it beating its tail? All of that stuff laid down on the tag um, with acoustics and with depth, all right? And so we get a really good profile of what the animals are doing while they're out there swimming around amidst this construction in the ocean. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Really cool. Uh, you also mentioned uh, frameworks for research to standardize how this research is going to happen going forward. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, yep, there are a couple things on that. One is one is to help um, identify where, where your gaps are, right? Like, what do we know about this species in relation to that sound and, you know, this time of year or whatever. Also, data standardization is a big, it's a big thing. So Pat Halpin's lab, the Marine Geospatial Ecology Lab at Duke, is going to be is spearheading that. And so data standardization is is an important thing, so that we can make the most out of all these data because it just takes so much time to try and translate them into something that's comparable to other data sets. And so standardizing those data is really important. So that's that's what that those particular frameworks are. That's kind of my, the vision for that. The other main set of frameworks are the risk assessment ones, right? And so the, the the companies, as they're making these decisions about investing in, you know, this particular area or that particular area, one of their one of the really important tools is what is what's the risk? I mean, what's the operational risk in terms of operating in that particular environment? What um, what are the potential risks for species that may be there that they're going to have to you know mitigate their um, activities uh, for? Um, so so putting together risk assessment frameworks is a really important part of, of what we're gonna try to help do um, because it, it um, among you know, many things is a really important tool um, to understanding you know, what those risks are and how to mitigate them. Right. Yeah. All right, so all of these efforts, the, the data collection, the data standardization, the risk assessment, they're all sort of streamlining the entire process and getting wind up and running faster, right? Well, and, 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 you know, in as a responsible a way as we can, right? Um, so, and they're not, you know, I wouldn't, it's not that the, all the efforts are trying to just go into making good environmental impact statements, right? It's also how does a company decide to deploy its resources during construction, right? For, for doing mitigation and monitoring of those activities, which they're going to be required to do by the agencies, um, but then how to, um, <clears throat> How to best construct those programs is also going to be, you know, assisted by these kind of efforts. This, what I'm excited about is working with this great team of people, mm -hmm. and the, and you know, the the partners that we already have that have committed to, you know, working with us, from you know, from the developers to the regional wildlife science entity, um, to you know, some of the um, uh, NGOs, and to try to build this continue to build this community because we are not starting it. You know, we're just going to try and help out um, of, you know, 
folks who really want to do the best job in getting this technology in the water to you know get us to renewable energy. So that to, for me, that's that's a big exciting part of it. I mean, the field research is always is always um, <clears throat> one of the most exciting and important things to me, right? Because that's what I've done for a long time. But the opportunity to work with this um, incredible group of folks is uh, is really um, quite an honor. So whales and wind, perhaps at first pass, not so obvious a connection, but our great whales fertilize phytoplankton growth, which are tiny green algae who soak up the carbon dioxide from our atmosphere, cooling our planet, while producing up to 80% of the oxygen on planet Earth. So without renewable energy, we keep polluting and heating our atmosphere, and without great whales, we lose our oxygen supply. Turns out, the very same wind that powered my catamaran towards the humpbacks on their breeding grounds in Hawaii can work in tandem with the great whales to solve some of our environmental problems. I'm excited to see how offshore wind will develop with the guidance of the WOW project, sailing us towards the carbon-neutral future we so desperately need while protecting our valuable wildlife and ecological systems that maintain our planet's health and advancing science along the way. You've been listening to Seize the Day. We're on social media, Instagram, and Twitter at Seize the Day Pod. Thank you, thank you to Doug Novacek and Steph Hillsgrove. Today's episode was written and produced by Nora Ives with support from Stephanie Hillsgrove and the rest of the Seize the Day team. Our theme music, The Oyster Waltz, was written and recorded by Joe Morton. For more about today's episode, including links and other content mentioned in this episode, check out our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu backslash seize the day. Thank you for listening.